Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Alliances, a networking community that brings together some of the best and brightest minds from around the world. If you want to bring your network and net worth to the next level, Alliances could be the missing piece that you've been seeking. With weekly private roundtables, regular deal-making meetings, and uniquely inspiring informative events, Alliance offers an experience unlike any you've ever had before. To learn more, visit Alliances.com. That's E-L-I-N-C-E-S dot com. That's Alliances, the only place where entrepreneurs align. My guest today is Terry Rich. Terry is a disruptive innovator and entrepreneur with a drive for integrity and honesty. He's worked in the trenches, survived the new business trends, and had success with generational changes. Oh, and he's given away over $1 billion to good causes. It's time to welcome the fraud-busting, creative, and lucky Terry Rich. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It seems like right now I should be saying void or prohibited member FDI since we're talking legal here. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So Terry, you've had quite the varied uh, career. And so I'd love for you to just tell our audience some of the highlights of the, some of the companies you've been involved with over the years. Sure. I started out on a farm, small farm in the Midwest and uh, graduated from college and got into cable television before cable television was cool and got to work with such folks as Ted Turner and help create HBO and MTV and all those sort of things. And I got my first big break when I was 29, when my hometown asked me to volunteer and do some public relations work for a centennial they wanted to do. And that public relations work landed us on the Johnny Carson show. My career really took off in the cable television world from there. And uh, at age 40, found out what mergers were all about when the Bass Brothers took a run at our company and we did leverage buyout and cashed out when I was 40. So I made most of my financial and personal goals that I thought would happen at 62 at 40, started my own company and and actually started four or five companies doing satellite uplinks to do free HBO previews. I would get with a company and we would show HBO on a basic cable channel. Then in between we'd produce saying, hey, now's the time to call and get HBO in your home. And it was really successful. Did that for about 10 years and realized at age 50, midlife crisis, that uh, I was ready to get off the road and, and do something different. So I got a call from a governor who said, hey, we're gonna, they're going to close the zoo in our local town uh, in the state, and we'd like uh, you to uh, come in and help us turn it into a nonprofit and run it. So I got to run a zoo for five years. How about that? It was losing about $600,000, and uh, we turned it around and got a big endowed trust fund so that it'll be around forever. 
And then another governor called and said, hey, uh, the lottery director quit. Would you be interested in uh, running a lottery? Heck, that sounded easy enough. So ran a lottery, and it was going so fun. And you can tell I enjoy promotion and, and marketing. But then it hit. We had an internal fraud from a company that was working with a lottery, and we busted the largest lottery fraud in U.S. history, something I never, ever want to go anybody else to go through. So after 10 years of running the lottery and putting this guy in prison for up to 25 years, I decided to take the next step, retire, and go on the road and tell the story of the Eddie Tipton case and teach people how to watch for internal fraud as much as you're watching for hacking from an external source. And that's really been fun to be able to travel the world and tell that story. Yeah, that sounds pretty wild to stumble into that. Could you tell our audience a little bit more about how you cracked the largest lottery fraud in U.S. history? We actually cracked it with the ticket, a hot dog, and Bigfoot, if you can believe that. Uh, it started one day when I got a call. I, I was on vacation, got a call and said, hey, someone just called a lawyer from Canada and said, I have the winning ticket for that $16 million jackpot that happened, but I'm just going to send you the ticket. You send me the money. Ding, ding. We knew something was amiss. So we did a little investigation. He didn't show up, nor did the lawyer from New York that got him the ticket, nor did the lawyer in Houston that got the lawyer in New York to the lawyer in Canada the ticket. But uh, they ultimately came in and tried to claim it. And we said, no way. And said, you've got to tell us who bought the ticket first. That's by law in Iowa. We do not allow anonymity for, for claiming tickets. Lo and behold, they wouldn't tell us. They just said, our client doesn't care about the money. They don't want the publicity. We're just going to uh, withdraw the funds. Ding, ding. Yeah, buddy. So long story short, we started an investigation with the Attorney General's Office, the Department of Criminal Investigation. It took about three years and uh, ultimately released the tape of the video that that the guy, when he bought the ticket, and people started coming out of the work and said, wait a minute, that's Eddie Tipton. Eddie Tipton, that's the guy who runs all the security for the multi-state lottery. And he's the one that designed the computer that draws the numbers for the ticket that won. So ultimately, we charged Eddie, put him through a trial, and during the trial, his brother came up and testified, that can't be my brother. He don't eat hot dogs. And that guy bought hot dogs on on the on that TV clip. Everybody looked at Eddie at 400 pounds, thought, this is crazy. And ultimately, an FBI agent recognized the brother who came up to vouch for his Eddie Tipton and uh, said, wait a minute, we tried to investigate him for money laundering. Called up to Rob Sand, our attorney general, and said, hey, you should investigate his brother too. Lo and behold, we found five different jackpots these guys have been claiming since 2005. Busted them all. And the beauty of all of this, when you think from a legal standpoint, the beauty is ultimately when they ask the question, raise your hand, do you want to be the, you want to be the witness or do you want to be the defendant? The, the good friend that they gave tickets to Cash said, oh, I'll be the witness. And we busted the whole thing and had enough evidence that all three confessed and were convicted and and sentenced. So most people don't get closure. You always wonder whether you're doing the right thing. And we got closure. So how long is Eddie Tipton in prison for? Eddie has a sentence of up to 25 years. He could be released as early as up to four or five years, which would be this fall. And, uh, you know, I personally, I think he probably will get paroled at some point soon and hopefully get out and help serve society a lot better. Wow, that's wild. 
So you said he like had been doing this, designing the software for picking the numbers by a computer. And obviously we see a lot of lotteries use balls rather than a number generator. Is there a higher level of security to just using the random balls? Is that like subject to its own fraud and maybe some like weighted balls or, or other things like that? Good question. Anytime you're dealing with billions and billions of dollars, I think people have the tendency and the urge to try to fraud. And that's one of the stories we tell when we go out and tell this story is that separation of duty is so important. Almost all of us know of a local church secretary or a local school business official who writes the POs and writes the checks, who has all the keys to the kingdom and, and could bust this. And that's what Eddie had. He had all the keys to the kingdom. He wrote the code, he compiled the code, and he uh, maintained the machine. So nobody, he didn't have enough oversight within that organization to catch it when he put the extra code in. And a little later, I'll tell you what that code actually did and why it was so complicated to find. But in any organization, if you're going after money, there's ways to do it. So are balls better or is a computer-generated number better? Um, the answer is both have temptation. And if you don't have the checks and balance, you're in problem. For example, uh, the biggest ball fraud in lottery history was in Pennsylvania in 1980. They made a movie, Lucky Numbers, out of it. And in that, the draw officer and the person who was the auditor got together, colluded, and they took a syringe and put latex paint on the inside of the ping pong ball so that all of the balls, other than the twos and the fours, would be weighted and wouldn't go up and come into the machine. So they bought all the combinations, the twos and fours. But the mafia, organized crime in Pennsylvania, if you can believe it, were using the same numbers to do their own numbers game. And they saw the video and said, wait a minute, something's screwy. And they're the ones that tipped everybody off. You got to check this out. And they were obviously convicted and put in jail. The other one was in Milan. That was a ball draw also where the ball officers or the draw officers used kids to draw the balls. Sounds innocent enough. Kids can't be corrupt, can they? What they did was when some of the kids didn't show up, they had their nephews or nieces draw the balls. They have them blindfolded, but they would put the balls they want to draw on either in a freezer or they would heat them or they would shave them so they're smoother and then tell the kids, hey, grab only the hot balls when you feel a ball that's warm, pull it out. And in fact, they got by with a lot, millions of dollars, but ultimately were busted. So I think they're in the all of the last 40, 50 years of lottery drawings, there have been billions and billions of daily draws. And I know of only four or five that actually had fraud. And in fact, the casino industries had the same kind of problems with slot machines and that sort of thing where code has been put in or somebody's trying to analyze the code to, to win on a slot machine. Wow, that's so wild. So would you still play the lottery after cracking these cases? All right. So here's the deal. So as a lottery, as a director of a lottery, I couldn't play Powerball or Mega Millions anywhere, and I couldn't play scratch tickets within our own state. Now that I'm out of the lottery, I can play all of those games. And I've been out of the lottery for two years, and I play the lottery. And guess what? I'm not winning. It's a really pretty fair and really high security in the lotteries in America because they're run by state. So if you think something's corrupt, you can go to your lottery director, you can go to your state senator, you can go to your governor. I do not play games that are offshore because those for sure, you don't know who's running them and what kind of ways they're doing the draw. So yeah, I play. Absolutely. <laughs> That's great. We're talking about like large lottery organizations and stuff here. How do smaller organizations or mom and pop shops, whatever, how can they all prevent fraud? Again, the number one thing is separation of duties. 
It sounds pretty simple, but back to that church secretary. You only have one employee in a church other than the minister, and they take all the money and they take it to the bank and they're purchasing something. They write the purchase order and then they the checks. There's no checks and balances. So if you're a small organization, make sure somebody else signs the checks and reviews the books prior to the time that the that the person there it's a triangle there are three things that that create internal fraud number one is financial need now you have a small organization people aren't stealing every day but when they do they typically have a financial need and it's usually drinking gambling divorce something that puts them over the top that they need the money the second is opportunity and that's back to the checks and balances. If there's if I have full all the keys of the kingdom to do all of these things and no one will know whether I've taken any money, I have the opportunity to do it. And that's why separation of duties fits into that second uh, uh, piece of the triangle. And the third piece according to the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners is the hardest to control if you're a supervisor and that's rationale. At what point even though you've got you could take the $10 out of that uh, church money as it comes in, and who who would know whether you took $200 or $100 were donated that day. Um, at some point, you rationalize, I'm not being paid enough. Um, I deserve more. My kids are going to college and they need the money. I need it more than the others do. That rationalization is the third piece. It's hardest to manage, but is, a, is the third piece that with all three of those, financial need, opportunity, and rationale, when those three all come together, you have a pretty good likelihood of fraud. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah, definitely tough to manage. So it seems like you've obviously had a ton of uh, varied success throughout different industries during your career. But I'd love to know that how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? Uh, yeah, I think so. Here, here's my favorite failure. When I came out of college and I started doing on-camera work, TV work, I noticed I didn't have a five o'clock shadow at five o'clock. So I decided to write Schick and tell him how much I love their track two razor. So I sat down, wrote a letter, said, hey, I'd love to do a TV commercial for you. And I sent it off knowing that within two weeks, I'd get a call and be heading for New York. During those two weeks, I had feelings like you might have if you're playing Powerball to wonder, what if I got a call and I got to do national television? And I got so excited about what that would be like. That when I got the letter, exactly two weeks later, I was psyched that's going to be one of my lifetime goals. I failed. I got the letter, and here's what it said. Dear Mr. Rich, expressing your complete satisfaction with your Gillette Track 2 razor, we appreciate your letter, but you wrote the wrong company. Gillette makes it, and here's their address. I didn't write Gillette, but I still had that ongoing desire to do something on camera. And when I hit, the, hit my uh, promotion to helped my small town, it ultimately landed me on Johnny Carson's show. So I started making my goals because I failed. And actually, when I did the when I got on the Johnny Carson show, I sent 44 press releases out about a centennial that we were having. And only one letter, all of them didn't make it. 43 failed. Nobody called and said, hey, we want to cover this. But the one that made it was from United Press International, which did a national press release. And that's how Carson found us. So then we Failed 43 of the 44 times, but yet that one time taught me about the possibility of doing a satellite uplink because the Carson show talked about going live from Cooper. And a year later, I started thinking, I want to do these HBO free previews. Why couldn't I do those via satellite? Because the Carson show said that could be done from my, my state. So I called HBO and they said, sure, we'll bring out a satellite uplink. And so I started doing these satellite uplinks 
And because I failed from the shaving, because I failed from all of the letters, if I'd only sent one letter, I would not be where I'm at today. But because I did and kept trying, I ultimately got to do these satellite uplinks and made a whole bunch of money and do everything I wanted to do along with a lot of national television. I definitely feel that one on a deep level. And I feel like it's so much more, so much more of a greater risk these days is email. You can start doing outreach to different people. And if you start doing too many, you get tired or someone, you end up sending the wrong thing, to the wrong people. And then you're like, oh no, I just sent an email to the CEO of one company. I meant to have the CEO of another. So that's great. But, but that's like job hunting. If you only go to one place, you'll never, you probably will never get it. You got to do a lot. You got to practice. I liken it to my grandkids when my granddaughter grew up and she was about a year and a half she came over pulled herself up on the couch and what happened she took a step and then boom she fell down she failed but what did she do she pulled herself back up took two steps and then boom fell it failed again but today of course she's running around because she kept trying and so many of us when we have a project if it fails the first time you just quit but did you know that when they sent the three men to the moon that moonshot failed over 90% of the time they were doing course corrections over 90% of the mission, which means that they had to keep trying and doing. They knew they had a general plan that works. So if you've got a project or something, you want to make a lot of money, you do it. And I found also that when you have little money, I took a lot of risks in my early day, but as I started making lots of money, I tried to take 10% of that and put it back into what I call R&D, research and development, or just taking a risk, finding something crazy that I always wanted to try. But I never spent the entire bank. Now, early in your career, you may want to do that. But as you start making money, you always set aside some money to be able to risk to do it. But the more money you make, the less risky most people become. Definitely agree. Definitely agree. So who have been some of your heroes uh, throughout your life and how did they help or inspire you? I think that family's always one. I had a great family that always encouraged me. As crazy as my ideas were, they laughed and they'd say, oh yeah, how about this or how about that? I always got encouragement. I'll, I'll never forget when I had success, I would call my dad and tell him about it. And then he'd say, whoa, whoa, I didn't understand. Would you tell me that again? I thought he couldn't hear, but no, he was giving me a second chance to tell it again and get his encouragement of how well that was. Family's one. I had the Johnny Carson show, even though Johnny didn't know me other than the interview or anything else. That propelled me both in my career and my inspiration to try to do something. But I think every job I've had, I get inspired by employees. And as we work toward equity, diversity, all the things that, that we're hearing about today, I love doing the things I'm doing today because I learn something new every day from folks like you that when you have mentorships and a CEO does a mentor for a student, I like to actually ask for the opposite, to have a young person mentor me back to tell me what app should I have today and what should I do there? Because you have to learn. It's lifelong learning that gives me inspiration every day. Yeah, I think that's really great, especially I'm a Xennial. So I was born in 83, like I had the full analog childhood, came up with commercial internet, but I remember not having a computer. And my sister, seven years younger, doesn't remember not having the internet. And so it's, I think, like a really unique space. But I love that about finding mentors that are cross-generational in both directions, because now you have all these kids that are digital natives coming up on, you know, digital platforms and, and advanced social media and TikTok and stuff. And it's they just experience a whole different world. So they have so much that they can teach anyone of any age. Um, and so being open minded to that as you get older is, I think, a fantastic strategy. It'll serve anyone well. I love learning. And you're, you hit it right on the head. That's 
the only way you do, if you think that I worked hard so I can tell everybody else how great a person I am, you're crazy. And I got lucky because, because I had four completely different jobs. My dad would have told me, go to work for someone, work for them all your life. When you turn 62, you'll uh, be successful and, and you'll be happy. And I thought when I turned 40 and I had everything, uh, happiness doesn't happen when you reach a goal. Happiness happens on the way to success, doing the deals, having the fun and having conversations like we're having today is much more beneficial and makes me much happier than if I'm just spouting off a speech saying why the things I did success worked. Definitely. So what are one to three books uh, that have greatly influenced your life? You know, most people talk about the books that uh, they've read that's inspired them. I do everything visually. I read very little. I wrote two books. I helped write two books. I had somebody help me in, in organization editing and all of that sort of thing. But I think experiencing life and being out there and um, when somebody says uh, we need somebody to clean the bathroom and nobody raise their hand, I like to be first volunteering and raising the hand to do it has taught me more because I've had to do things I never have done before, um, than, than probably sitting and, and reading books, TV, radio, that's my generation, or at least my mantra of how I've learned. Yeah, I think it's great to adopt a mindset of nothing is, no matter how high your status is, nothing is ever below you. So it's like when you're when you're a solopreneur or something, like there's nobody else to take out the trash. There's nobody else to sweep the floors. So you got to do it. And then, um, but then as people become CEOs or thousand, 10,000 person companies, it's, oh, that's not my job and everything. But which it's like, yeah, you may have someone dedicated to it, but keeping that mindset that nothing is below you um, and that everyone's a team player and has a role that can encompass anything, I think really leads a lot of people to greater success. Agreed. I think when I went from working for the New York Stock Exchange Company, the cable company, to my own companies, deciding to start my own business, I, hadn't, I, I didn't have any idea about liability, insurance, workers' comp, all of that sort of things. I just thought it cost this much money because that's what my budget was, not realizing what the overall organization and learning those new things were, that was really valuable as I went on through, especially when I got into being a government worker because the government workers are really siloed. So bringing them out of their shell and letting them be a part and seeing it, how it all comes together really proved to be and helped the success. Definitely. So what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And feel free to take that as you know, broadly as you could characterize it. I think the best investment was starting off when I, they said, you really should put some money aside in your 401k. At that point, it's called IRA or whatever they were called, anyway, retirement account. And when you first go to work somewhere, we'll match so-and-so. And I'm thinking, well, at least I'll put that much in. That was probably the best step of investment. And, and what I've done, I've invested in a lot of things that have turned around. The, the cable company, when we sold off, we divested when we did a leverage buyout. And we invested in a company called Daylight Screen. Never been to their company, didn't know, but we owned them and we couldn't sell them to anybody that they thought was worthwhile. And that thing just kicked out cash like nothing else because they got part of the entrepreneurial spirit that we had and we worked with them and marketed them and they just were really successful. But I think the biggest success is just having a decent family, having a fun family. Everybody has their days, but our family's still together. Very few times do you have someone who's married for 42 years. Kids are all married. Kids have kids. And we get together every Sunday. It's just a little too ideal. That's not the way life works today and as diverse a world we have. But right now I've got that. So that's been a pretty good investment to try to make that work.
Yeah, absolutely. So what advice would you give to a smart, driven college student about to enter the real world and what advice should they ignore? I think there's two. I, I mentioned the volunteering or, or looking at other things. Some people have their sight on being a chemical engineer, and this is exactly what I want to do. The world is changing so fast. You need to be as broad-based as possible. I wish I'd learned more, more languages, become more global. But I think not just going after one particular job. You're a chemical engineer coming out, and you can go to a publishing company and take that expertise and have something no one else has, you might make more money. But keeping very broad and continuing to keep updated, as we talked earlier on technology, and we're I, I wish I'd have done more in technology in that. The second, though, is probably the most important, and that is learn how to relax. I'm an A-type. Most people who are driven who are very successful are A-types, but taking some, being able to take some time off. And I can only think of one time going to Hawaii for two weeks. It was the second week that I was just, it was bliss. And I wish I'd have found a way earlier in life to not feel guilty taking off some time and taking a vacation or just going, doing more yoga, doing more exercise, doing something there that makes sure that my, my body and my mind is as fresh as it absolutely can be to be successful. Oh, I love that. That actually leads perfectly into my next question. You mentioned yoga and some exercise there. You know, what are your, some of your other self-care strategies, tactics, techniques to you know, be able to relax, step away from you know, the business grind and such? Fa families, definitely. Spend a lot of time with family. And that's fun. And that gives me some peace to be able to separate out. But about three years ago, four years ago, I did something completely. I, I didn't do long-term running. I, I couldn't handle that just the way my body was. I didn't like doing long distance running. I love sprints. So I played racquetball, did that. But what really happened was I found my bike and in our community, we have huge bike trails and we had a group of four or five people that just would always bug each other. Let's go today. Let's go today. And last year I did 2,300 miles on a bike. And that probably has become my, my brain relaxation and keeps my body healthy. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. Like I, I just moved to Phoenix in the middle of the pandemic last summer. And of course, it's abusively hot in the middle of the summer, 110, 120 during the day. But what I really found was like cycling at night. And Phoenix is like the main part of the city is fairly flat. It's all in a grid. Um, and it was like, okay, I'm in a new city. Kind of, There's a lot of stuff shut down um, and just wanted to start mapping it in my brain. So every night I'd go out and I'd probably do 20, 30 miles a night. And it's so dry here that whereas back when I was in a place like North Carolina, the humidity started cramping up after 10, 15 miles. And here I yeah. could just keep going and going. Even when I was like out of shape, hadn't worked out in a while. And I was like, man, like I just did 30 miles and it felt like nothing. And then you're like dry as a bone as well. Um, but yeah, there's nothing like cycling. I totally agree. So I probably did 500 miles over the course of over the course of summer, but yeah, 2,300, that's a hell of a goal. That's putting it in right there. It's what, seven, seven-ish miles a day at minimum. So yeah, very impressive. And it, and again, it was fun. And, and I saw a piece the other day of the people who have retired, who, what, what keeps them alive longest. And you think about different things. What do you think it is? Number one, socialization. The idea, and this is important for all your career is to socialize and be, and that's what's tough about the pandemic, being by yourself and you do it with Zoom and that, but socialization is number one. Number two is having friends and talking to friends. Number three is quit drinking. Number four, quit smoking. That sounds logical. Number five was getting a flu shot. I imagine it'll be a, next year, it'll say a pandemic shot. And then it was exercise after those five. So mentally, if you're going strong and you're 
interactive, you're staying active mentally, you will physically do much better too. I thought that was an interesting study. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. I definitely, uh, definitely get on board. Yeah. Cycling with friends that checks like half the boxes and stuff and pretty hard to smoke or drink on a bike. Yeah. But you got to stop once in a while and have a drink. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Stop off at the bar or something like that. Little, <laughs> little reward. <laughs> or it depends on what you're smoking. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So let's see if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? Here's one of my million dollar ideas I haven't been able to have been able to do. And the billboard would be, I, I looked up one day, I was, they asked me to help promote mega millions when it was first launching nationwide. And I looked up at the moon and on the moon is only the little fingernail piece. You couldn't, it wasn't a full moon. And there was this big dark part of the moon. I thought, gosh, if we could get a laser disc or, or a laser and, or a, or a big spotlight and put the mega million jackpot on it, We'd own the moon. Everybody in the world would see it. No one's claimed the moon yet as a billboard. So I, I think that would be fun to find the technical way to be able to broadcast something or push something out to the moon that people could see when they look up at night across the world. So that would be my goal. <laughs> That's pretty wild. I've not gotten that answer before. So yeah, I think you're still on the cutting edge of uh, moon build, moon advertising. The other one I have, here's the other million dollar idea. I had a call from a small town said, hey, help us. We're next to the interstate, 60,000 cars. How do we get people off? And everybody gets gas. Everybody has a restaurant. Those are at all the stops. But what's the third thing you do when you're moving down the interstate? That's bathrooms, clean bathrooms. So I said, get a great big building. Let's put in 100 stools and we'll get Gerber to help us with, you know, modern ones. We'll get country ones. We'll put an outhouse outside. Um We'll sell Tootsie Rolls and Baby Ruth's uh, there. We'll have Charmin provide the toilet paper, do market research. We'll have a dog park. We'll put all that together and and then get T-shirts. I got pooped out in Menlo or I got PO'd in Menlo, that sort of thing. And that people would stop by. And that would be my other million dollar idea. But that's as we talk about players, I haven't convinced anybody to be the poop capital of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a little leap of faith there. But yeah, I could see that being lucrative. So are there any quotes that you think of often or live your life by? I, I have two quotes. It's better to have tried and failed than to succeed at doing nothing. Doesn't succeed at doing nothing sound like a government employee? Because it's better to have tried and failed the self-worth that you'll have than it is to succeed at doing nothing. And the other one I mentioned earlier is happiness happens on the way to success. If you have a goal and you make it at age 20, you haven't set your goal high enough. If you have a goal and you make it, you'll say... Okay, that was successful. What do I do now? So happiness happens on the way to success. And everybody every day says things like, geez, if I can just get this project done, if I can just get this podcast done, I'm, I'm going to be happy. No, happiness means inner. You wake up in the morning and say, I'm, I'm going to be happy today. And Damon John, who works, who did the Shark Tank, I did a session with him not long ago. And he talked about every night he has a list that he writes six things he's going to do tomorrow. Where he goes to bed and then he wakes up and he revises them the next morning. But the six things are something that he's going to do for himself, not for everybody else. Because when you're successful, everybody's yanking on you saying, would you help me with this? Can I get this? Can I get that? And he found that he, by doing that, he makes time for himself and he began, he's become happier in that. 
Yeah, that's great. I One of my favorite shirts I've ever had, I found a few years ago, everyone talks about the pursuit of happiness. And the shirt said the pursuit is happiness. And I was like, Oh, this is perfect. I think it like dovetails with your quote. Absolutely. There's another company that I heard in when I about 10 years ago. It's um, life is good. You probably seen their t shirt stick man. And they right. were talking about when they first started the company, a very entrepreneurial company, young and millennials at the time. And everybody was coming to the meetings and they kept hearing them say, yeah, I have to go to this meeting or I have to get this project done and all that. So they called everybody and said, throw away the word have, we're going to insert the word get. So we know when I hear in this company have anymore, I get to go to the meeting because I get to participate because I'm valued enough to come in or I have to get this project done. I get to get this project done because I have a job, I'm making money, I'm having a good time. And changing that one word change the entire corporate environment. And I, I give life is good founders credit for a really cool idea. Oh, totally. It just so powerfully demonstrates the power of story and, and the power of words and mindset and just that shift. You can have someone, you have two people experience the exact same thing and, um, you know, really look at it in different ways. And then that sort of crafts their reality. Um, you know, people in the worst conditions in the world still finding happiness and persevering, you know, through even the worst stuff. And then you have people like in this country with, you know, more money than God and still unsatisfied with their life in some way. And so it's, you know, it's all a little, you make a little crazy story from Ted Turner. I, I haven't never told the story and I don't, you can edit it out if you decide you want to. I brought T Ted Turner came in for a speech and I took him from the airport and I said, how's it going, Ted? And he said, geez, he said, I've got, uh, he, he says, I found out today I'm worth a half a billion dollars. This is way back. So it'd be worth a lot more today. And he said, I have two uh, psychologists or psychiatrists that work with me. And he said, I went home, got a drink of water, looked out the door, and there were two dogs going for it. And he said, I just realized they're happier than I am. And this is a guy <laughs> who was really successful. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's wild. Definitely puts things in perspective when you can see something like that. It's just domesticated animals just, yeah, enjoying life. And you're up there with everything that others want and you're still not finding that inner happiness and contentment. I've never met any CEO who doesn't have some problems and you look at everybody and every day I went to work, I looked up and thought, I'm in charge of this place, scares the crap out of me. But as a leaders, the good leaders, when they get to the door, will open the door, walk in with confidence. And when asked, they'll make a decision. They won't be indecisive. They'll make a decision. And usually employees will follow a good leader, even when they make the decision, if they're unsure in their mind, it usually will be successful because they have walked in with confidence and said, I'm going to get this done. But everybody's, everybody thinks about and is scared every day. Every CEO that I know is always worried a little bit about what's going on. Oh, definitely. It's it's a huge responsibility, especially once you start employing people. And it's a lot of people don't take it very seriously. But to me, that's it's like almost a sacred duty um, to be responsible for someone's livelihood and stuff. And definitely not something to be taken lightly. Agreed. This has been a fascinating conversation, Terry. I'm so glad you joined us. We've come to the last question of the day. Um, and I took this from Patrick O'Shaughnessy, a fantastic podcaster I went to school with back in the day. And the question is, What's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Kindest thing anyone's ever done to me. Um, probably the simple act of saying thank you, being appreciated. Um, there's a bank president that I learned uh, a long time ago. I just, I was always amazed. Every day he sits down and writes three thank you letters to people. And so it's a letter. It, you actually get this written thing saying, hey, I saw you did that. 
a good job and and thanks for being part of the community so i think that's that is very simple that's very kind and probably appreciated as much i'd rather see a whole bunch of those in small words than somebody giving me a million bucks yeah that's so powerful i love that answer thank you so much for joining me today terry it was a pleasure to get to speak with you absolutely do i get to say any more of the disclaimers like the void of prohibited member of the <laughs> As many as you'd like. You have a great day, Terry. Uh, you know, thank you again. This, this was fantastic. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness.